All right, so um, we are starting a new series this morning, and it's on the Minor Prophets. So we're going to walk through the Minor Prophets over the next three months. There are 12 Minor Prophets, and these books are found, at least in the English version of the Bible, as the last 12 books of the Old Testament. Okay, so Hosea through Malachi. And we're going to look at Hosea this morning. So in the Hebrew Bible ordering, these 12 prophets are actually compiled into one book called the Book of the Twelve. So they all hang together, but they all have, you know, different emphases. They actually speak to different times of biblical history and so forth. So we need to get into some of that and understand it. This is not high traffic territory um, for many Christians, the uh, minor prophets. Uh, there's a lot of historical and cultural distance between the world that those prophets were addressing and our world. And it can be difficult to understand what's going on harder than, say, reading the Gospels or one of the letters of Paul. It's a little bit easier to understand what Jesus is saying or what Paul is saying, and we can apply it to our lives more quickly, a little bit easier. So sometimes we neglect these books or we're content not to understand. Maybe you just, you know, blow through and the stuff you don't understand, you just go, eh, and then check off the box and move on. So if you do that, you miss out on so much rich revelation of the heart and the mind and the ways of God that he intends us to understand. He wants to give that grace and, to, grace and truth to us. So we don't want to miss out on the wisdom that is very relevant to our lives in these books. We just need to do a little bit more work so that we can access it. Okay, so if you know that there's diamonds in that mine, you're going to be willing to put some work in to uncover them. Okay, so in order to encourage uh, some of that mining, uh, not just on Sunday mornings, but during the week, I put together a reading plan for the next three months. Okay, so um, there are 12 books in the series, right? So it's going to take us three months. So the reading plan covers August through October. And it's set up in two different ways. If, if you don't have a reading plan right now or you'd like to just stop what you're doing and focus on the minor prophets for the next three months, the first plan that we sent on Friday looks like that. And it'll take you through all 12 books two times in the three months. And those little um, blue links, they're actually supposed to work. And sorry, we realized this morning that the one that we sent out on Friday, the links aren't working. So we'll get that fixed and resend it tomorrow. Um, but basically, you'll also be linked to each of the Bible Project videos, um, really helpful little intro videos to each of these books. Um, I think Chad's going to bring one up. So this is Hosea. Um, if you want to watch this today, it's the assignment for today. Just type in Hosea Bible Project video and it'll come up. So this is their YouTube page. And Hosea, you can see it's, maybe you can't see, but it's seven and a half minutes long. So it's really brief, but it really gives a helpful orientation to the book. So back to the, the plan. Um, the first page is two times through in three months, all 12 books, the Bible Project videos, and the ESV Study Bible intro notes. So if you're an aspiring Bible thumper, an ESV study Bible is a great Bible. Look at the weight of that thing. You could, you guys all awake here. Okay. Um, it is big and heavy, but it is an incredible resource. There's so much scholarship that's put into this 
Bible, and it's very accessible. So if you don't have a study Bible, highly recommend the ESV study Bible. And so you can um, read those notes, and that'll benefit um, your study as well. The second page is a shorter plan. Let's say you're already doing a Bible plan, and you just want to add this to it. Um, or maybe you're just a slow reader, and you, you just want to camp out. That's fine. Um, so this just takes you through the 12 books once in three months, and also through those Bible project videos. Okay? So, um, yeah, so that's that. Um, each Sunday, we're going to take one book, like I said, and we're going to be focusing, we can't walk through it in detail, especially some of the longer ones, like Hosea is 14 chapters long, so we're not going to be here till 3 o'clock, I promise. Um, but we're going to be focusing on the major themes in the minor prophets, okay? So there is a lot of sin and judgment in these books, and, and sometimes that can be off-putting. But what we're focusing on, you'll see, the minor prophets are these major biblical themes in a minor key. And sometimes we really need music in a minor key because it's fitting to life. But don't worry, it's not all doom and gloom. There are some wonderfully hopeful and just radiant glimpses of the mercy and the love of God and the hope that is ours as Christians. In fact, that hope and that radiance actually breaks forth in the midst of really tough circumstances, which you can see would be maybe particularly relevant these days. So one last bit of big picture orientation before we dive into Hosea. Why, do the, why are these books called the Minor Prophets? Is that because um, they're not as important as the Major Prophets? You know, the Major Prophets would be Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. So is it like the difference between the Major Leagues and the Minor Leagues, you know? Uh, reading Isaiah or Jeremiah or Daniel or Ezekiel is like going to a Phillies game. And then reading Hosea or Joel or Amos or Obadiah or whatever is like going to a Blue Rocks game. Is it like that? Um, or is it kind of like the JV prophets? We're going to look at the JV prophets and then someday we'll, we'll look at the varsity prophets, you know, the major prophets. No. No, they're just shorter. <laughs> that's, that's the only reason they're called the minor prophets. So it's not that Ezekiel got his letter jacket and Habakkuk did not. Um, they're just shorter. And lest anyone wonder, yes, Daniel has 12 chapters and Hosea and Zechariah have 14, but Daniel is still quite a bit longer than the other two. Okay? So enough for big picture intro. Let's zoom in a little bit on the book of Hosea. And again, this is going to be kind of a bird's eye view. And one of the purposes of this series is to give that forest view, that, that kind of framework and orientation so that you can go and study it more on your own. So, um, yeah, just to really encourage you to take up that reading plan and go for it. All right, so first point, um, there's four points this morning. The first point is just trying to get our bearings here in the book of Hosea. So what is going on here? Well, let's dive right in and... Take a look. Look at Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. So you're going to probably need Bible open, whether it's on an electronic device or, or a hard copy, um, so you can follow along here. So Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. So the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, 
and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Okay, so there are kings of Judah, kings of Israel. What's going on there? So one, this tells us basically when Hosea was doing his prophetic ministry. So the date range of these kings is from 753 to 687 B.C. Okay, that doesn't mean that Hosea ministered during that whole time, um, but basically the latter half of the 8th century B.C., which is 750 to 700, right? It goes backwards when you're doing it that way, B.C., years. So this is happening about 200 years after the breakup of the United Kingdom under Solomon, right? All of the tribes were together under Solomon. But then his son, Rehoboam, rebelled, and they went up, ten tribes, northern kingdom under Rehoboam, and the kingdom was divided and split. Okay, so the northern kingdom is usually referred to as Israel, and the southern kingdom as Judah. It can be kind of confusing, right? Because, wait, Israel, I thought that was all the people of God. Well, after the divided kingdom, the northern kingdom is referred to as Israel and the southern kingdom as Judah. So ten tribes north, two tribes south, Judah and Benjamin. Okay, so the book itself is structured. There's different ways you can break it down, but the easiest thing is to say the first three chapters are like an overview of the whole book. And it starts out with this story of Hosea and Gomer, and we'll look at that in just a minute, because they are like a little parable, a little prophetic parable of God's relationship with his people. And then chapters 4 to 14 are the causes and the effects of the unfaithfulness of God's people. And there's accusations and warnings and judgment and promises of renewal beyond that judgment. All right? So let's just read through chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, and we'll get a feel for what's going on here. So... The word comes to Hosea in this time, verse 2, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, okay, like a prostitute, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So, I mean, how, how would you like it if you were the prophet and that was your assignment? So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, which does not have good connotations in biblical history, um, bloodshed and an evil king Ahab, okay? For in just a little while, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So the name of this son is meaningful. It points to what's happening and what's going to happen among the people of Israel. Then Gomer conceived again and bore a daughter, which, look back at verse 3. She conceived and bore him a son. It doesn't say that she bore him this son. So who's the dad? Hold on to that. 
And the Lord said to, said to him, call her name. ESV actually goes ahead and gives you like the English equivalent. It's lo ruhama, okay, which means no, no mercy or no pity, okay? Because... God will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah. Judah wasn't quite as bad as Israel. <laughs> so Israel, northern kingdom, was judged decisively in 722. It took until 586 for Judah to be so rebellious that they were judged decisively. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When Gomer had weaned lo Ruhama, no mercy, she conceived, again, you're thinking, how? Was this by some other dude? And bore a son, and the Lord said, call his name Lo-Ami, which means not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. So you can see judgment, and this is not hair-trigger anger. This is just repeated, repeated, repeated rebellion and, and just rejecting the Lord and worshiping idols and all of this. And he's going to judge them. Yet, verse 10, there's a picture of hope here already. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, just like God promised Abraham. And in the place where it was said, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. In other words, someday God's going to reverse it and bring them back to himself. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together. So no longer will the people of God be divided and separated. And they shall appoint for themselves one head. So they're going to all be under one king, ultimately Jesus. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. And then, verse 1 of chapter 2, God is saying to Hosea as the prophet, Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. So again, even in this book, Hosea's ministry is calling the people to return to the Lord. Don't reject him and keep running away, which is why in verse 2, plead with your mother. Mother is like the personification of, of the people of Israel. Plead with them to return, okay? So again, this is what's going on. Big picture, Hosea and Gomer are a living parable of what's going on with the Lord and his people. And it puts two things at least, more than this, but at least two main things into stark relief as you walk through this book. One, the heart of sin, or we could say it another way, the sinfulness of sin. And two, the heart of God. Okay, so those are our next two points, the heart of sin and the heart of God. So let's look first, point number two in the outline, the heart of sin. So we already saw it in chapter one, verse two, the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Look down at verse at chapter 4 now. So skip ahead a couple chapters and look at chapter 4, verse 1, so that we can see the nature of sin that God is addressing and what it really is, what it means. So 4, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. 
there is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. So the people of God that are supposed to be faithful to God are completely unfaithful to God. There's no faithfulness. There's no love for God. There's no knowledge of God. It's just a spiritual wasteland. Instead, there is swearing and lying and murder and stealing and committing adultery. They break all bounds. Bloodshed follows bloodshed. So he begins to list specific sins, and he does more so elsewhere in the book. But at the heart of all of these sins is the heart of sin, which is infidelity to God. All idolatry is spiritual adultery. Having other gods before God is infidelity to the true God. So they were bowing to Baal, the fertility god. They wanted to make sure they kept Baal happy because they wanted to have kids and they wanted to have crops that would grow. That's infidelity. They weren't trusting the Lord and remaining faithful to him. Look at another description of sin in chapter 2. So flip back to chapter 2, beginning in verse 2. So this is God saying to Hosea, you know, here's what your prophetic ministry sounds like. Plead with your mother. Plead, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Plead that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. So what does this like say to the mother, children of whoredom? What's going on? The whole point is how are the people of Israel viewing their future? How are they being perpetuated? How are they being preserved and perpetuated? Their getting in bed with other nations and relying on their strength and help to stay in existence. So they're actually trusting in the political, military, economic might of other nations in order to survive. So the future children of Israel are children of whoredom, of unfaithfulness, of adultery. So plead with the mother, don't do this. For their mother, verse 5, has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. You see, like economic alliance, which is we're not trusting God. We're going to trust these other nations to survive. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. In other words, God's wanting to frustrate those efforts in order that she would come back to him. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And, verse 8, she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. So think about it. Remember when they were brought out of Egypt? They plundered the Egyptians, and they got all kinds of gold and silver, and they were planted in the promised land, 
They didn't work for that. God did it. You know, land and milk and honey. All their wealth came from God, and then they used their wealth to buy their lovers. You see how, ooh, like using what God gives you to buy a prostitute, to buy a paramour. That's a picture of the heart of sin. Do you see how that's a slap in God's face to use his gifts to buy love that will never ultimately satisfy us? Therefore, God says, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season. I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. I gave all these blessings because she was my wife, but she just keeps rejecting me, so I'm going to give her what she wants. I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages which my lovers have given me. Boy, it really pays to get in bed with Assyria or Egypt, because look at how well we're doing. I will make them a forest and the beast of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. So the heart of sin, again, this is like weird language. We're not used to it, but we, it's so easy to lose sight of the sinfulness of sin. And when you realize that all idolatry, when something else takes first place in our heart over, the, over God, all idolatry is adultery. It's like a splash of cold water on your face, like, whoa, that's really ugly. I don't want to do that. I don't want to live like that. So sin is not just breaking the rules, though it is God's commands. It is relational infidelity. We should feel in our gut how nauseating sin is. We, we need to feel the sinfulness of sin. We're often dull to its sinfulness, which I think is oftentimes why we yawn at the grace of God. We're unmoved at the communion table. We take a posture of, what have you done for me lately with God? We feel more like a victim than a perpetrator in the universe. And we wallow in self-pity and grumble. We grumble more than we're grateful. So this metaphor of the sinfulness of sin, our sin, not just ancient Israel's sin, because James 4 that Sharon read, you adulteresses, like if you try to have your cake and eat it too, kind of like straddle God and the world, or if you're just getting in bed with the world, it's spiritual adultery. So we need to see this. We need to take it in and go, oh, Lord, I don't want to be unfaithful to you. Idolatry is adultery. Sin is infidelity. So turning from God to follow after idols means treating our most faithful love as a threat or our greatest ally as an enemy. 
So you can see why we need to return and repent. Hosea is like this big cautionary tale against spiritual adultery. So imagine a friend of yours. So really, like pick somebody. Good friend. Married couple that you know. Known them for a while. You know, they had a good marriage. Their spouse is faithful. And your friend starts to toy with an emotional affair. Little by little, they start to close off. They get annoyed. They start to nitpicky, judgmental, critical, disappointed, close off to their faithful spouse, and they start opening up to that person at work or at the gym. And then, all of a sudden, they cross the line. And they live a double life for some months, exciting at first, but it's also exhausting. The deception and the lies and the constant fear of exposure. And then one day, they get found out and it all blows up in their face. They just detonated a bomb in the middle of their marriage and their family, did all kinds of damage. Do you think that person would warn you against toying with infidelity, or do you think they would encourage you to try it? So this book is full of cautionary tales and warnings. It's full of the sinfulness of Israel's Sid in vivid, poignant, repulsive imagery to get our attention. But that's not all that this book is about. <laughs> this book is also full of the loveliness of God's love in vivid, vivid and just radiant imagery. So point number three, the heart of God. So on the, on the heels, you know, chapter two, you know, ugh, all this imagery of, of infidelity. The first half of chapter two that we looked at, how would you expect God to respond to all that just repulsive stuff. You kind of expect the hammer to come down, right? Judgment to rain down like fire. Instead, look at what follows. We stopped at verse 13. Let's pick up now at verse 14 and see the heart of God. This is the heart of God. Therefore, after all this wretched sin, she's pursuing her lovers and, you know, all of this. Verse 14, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor, which means trouble, a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. Speaking of when God brought the Israelites out at the Exodus. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal, referring to the idolatry. For I will remove the names of the Baals, the false gods, from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me 
forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. So just as the marriage and the infidelity imagery helps us feel the sinfulness of sin at the first half of chapter 2, so the incredible mercy and grace, the long-suffering, the forgiveness, the love of the divine husband here at the end of chapter 2 helps us feel, like really know the heart of God and just be blown away at his incredible love. And just to underline that point a little bit bolder, so one of the recurring problems in Israel, in the book of Hosea, is that they don't know the Lord. Okay, there's no knowledge of God, even among the religious leaders. And that's just a terrible situation. But lest we think that it's just an ignorance issue or an information issue, think about this. Knowing someone in the Bible is sometimes a euphemism for sexual intimacy. So the the most intimate of relations for husband and wife, it's reserved for this covenant of marriage. Remember, Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore a son. So read again the end of chapter 2 here with that in mind. Back at 14, therefore, behold, I will allure her, speak tenderly to her. I'm going to remove the names of these false gods, you know, these uh, competitors for her heart. Verse 18, I will make you lie down in safety. Verse 19, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Oh. You get the shock factor there? So we know marriage is a picture of Christ in the church, right? Even Sexual intimacy is intended to be a pointer to the transcendent intimacy of our relationship with God through Christ. There's a reason why when Jesus comes back, it's called the consummation. So Martin Luther, Protestant reformer, told the story of a a lover and his beloved that captures what this book and the gospel is all about. So there's a great king. You know, he's great and wise and wealthy, and he's talking about Jesus. I'll go ahead and give it away because you'll make the connections quickly anyway, right? But we still need to think through this. And he married a poor girl, a prostitute, who was laden with debts and shame. That's us. That's you and me if we're in Christ. There was simply nothing that she could do to make herself respectable, let alone royal. But the king came to her in love and he wooed her and he wanted her to be his. He brings her to himself to be his. And on the wedding day, she gets to say, all that I am, I give to you. All that I have, I share with you. And what is that at that point? A bunch of debt and shame. And the king turns to her and says, all that I am, I give to you. And all that I have, 
I share with you. Gospel's really, really good news, given the heart of our Savior in spite of the nature of our sin. So in that moment, that poor girl is the queen. She's betrothed and obviously in this picture married. She may not know all the etiquette of the queen or her royal court, but by status, she is the queen. So it is with us, okay? In and of ourselves, we are unworthy, but united to Christ, we are royal and beloved. And don't miss this central point. Jesus does not simply give us forgiveness as his people simply so that we can just go to heaven when we die, though that's true and it's great. The bridegroom gives himself to the bride. The greatest thing that she gets is him. He is the treasure. He is the reward. He gives himself and all he has to her. He doesn't just give her gifts so she can go off and live life elsewhere. There is no enjoyment better than to be his and for him to be ours and for us to be with him. So let's finish here, chapter 2. And in that day, verse 21, I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain and the wine and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel, and I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, lo me, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. That is the reversal of grace. They deserved, we deserve no mercy, not my people, but through Christ we receive mercy and become God's people. So this passage is actually picked up in the New Testament in two places, Romans 9.25 and 1 Peter 2.10. And it's applied to Gentiles because they're brought into the family of God. So 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So again, we see, despite, even in light of our wretched sinfulness, the mighty, great, loving heart of God. One, one more passage to see the heart of God. Chapter 11. So flip ahead to chapter 11. Verse 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And just note, the marriage metaphor is not the only metaphor in the book of Hosea, even though it's the controlling one, okay? So there are other metaphors that are used in this book. So when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Ephraim's kind of a central um, tribe in Israel, northern kingdom, so sometimes Ephraim refers to the northern kingdom. I took them up by their arms, but they didn't know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, 
back to slavery and oppression, but Assyria shall be their king because they've refused to return to me. So they've been trusting in and trying to placate Assyria for the sake of their safety, and they refuse to return to the Lord. So judgment is coming. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. Stubborn rebellion. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. So he is going to judge them. But even though he has to judge them to get their attention, what is the heart of God like? Look at verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? Do you believe this is the heart of God? Listen, this, this is the heart of God toward his people. How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. Again, here's a note of hope. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come home. They'll come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them. I will settle them to their homes, declares the Lord. So they're stubborn. They won't return. They're bent on turning away from the Lord. He's going to discipline them. And though he could justly condemn them forever and forsake them and reject them, he can't. His heart is just too warm and full of too much love. So instead of waiting for them to return, which would basically be they'll never come back, he graciously pursues them and returns them to himself. So he roars, who other than the Lion of Judah, right? And they come trembling to him and he returns them back home. So this is the heart of God. His love is better than unconditional. So what do I mean by that? Because we talk about it all the time, right? God's love is unconditional, which is great. Well, yes and no. So it's partially true. You know, I think when we use that language, we're basically saying that God's love is not conditional in the sense that, you know, you better do this and this and this, these conditions, then he'll love you. Okay, that's true. That kind of love can be manipulative and demanding. It's not what the heart of God is like. Or we may mean that, God's love is patient and he's long-suffering. You know, he doesn't bail out when we sin and fail. Okay, that's true. Or maybe it's in contrast to legalism, you know, that sets up all these strict conditions and you've got to meet them in order to, you know, get into or stay into God's good graces and it kind of makes Christians who feel like they're always walking on eggshells. Okay. Or sometimes we mean it in the sense that God invites us to come as we are. Like, come as you are. No conditions. You don't have to get your act together before you can come to Jesus. Okay, absolutely. So if you use it in those senses, it's understandable, it's helpful. But his love is actually strictly not unconditional. It's better than that. There are conditions to acceptance with God. Rather than making them irrelevant, God himself fulfilled the conditions, all the conditions, through Christ. Jesus met the conditions for us. The wages of sin is death. We deserve to die for our sins, but Jesus died in our place. 
So even though God welcomes us to come as we are, he doesn't just leave us as we are. He loves us too much to do that, to leave us as we are. There is something wrong with us. It's not just kind of like, you know, come on in and you don't have to change, just always as you are. No, he intends to change us. There is something wrong with us. Sin and infidelity and a bentness to run away from him. He intends to change us precisely because he loves us. So um, biblical counselor David Palson, who passed away recently, um, this wonderfully helpful writer and, and teacher, he said this, God does not accept me just as I am. He loves me despite how I am. He loves me just as Jesus is. He loves me enough to devote my life to renewing me in the image of Jesus. This love is much, much, much better than unconditional. Perhaps we could call it contra-conditional love. Contrary to the conditions for knowing God's blessing, he has blessed me because his son fulfilled the conditions. Contrary to my due, he loves, he loves me. And now I can begin to change, not to earn love, but because of love. You need something better than unconditional love. You need the crown of thorns. You need the promise to the repentant thief. You need to know I will never leave you or forsake you. You need forgiveness. You need a vine dresser, a shepherd, a father, a savior, and we could add a husband, divine husband like Hosea says. You need to become like the one who loves you. You need the better love of Jesus. This is the heart of God, and it's a better than unconditional loving heart. So mercy and passionate fidelity, contra-conditional love. All right, so where do we go from here? Well, look at the very last verse of this book. Chapter 14, verse 9. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. So do you see how it's almost like this editorial comment at the end that says, this is not just a history lesson. <laughs> this is a call for all of the readers of the book of Hosea to heed these words. Whoever is wise, understand these things. Understand the heart of sin. Understand the heart of God. And respond in faith. Return to your maker, your lover, the only one who can satisfy your soul. So a few quotes that just, I think, capture these thoughts well. Because there's a, there's a refrain. We'll look at it in just a minute. A couple passages of return, return, return to me. So Dane Ortland says this. He says, repent of your small thoughts of God's heart. Repent and let him love you. <laughs> or Charles Spurgeon said this. If there were not that thick veil of unbelief between you and the Savior's eyes, his looks of love would melt you. So if that doesn't make you want to say, I believe, help my unbelief, like blow away that fog of unbelief that blinds me from seeing your heart. Like help me see it. Melt my stupid unbelief. 
kind of why Paul prayed, I think, the way he prayed in, in Ephesians 3. He prayed that according to the riches of his glory, of God's glory, that he may grant us to be strengthened with power through his spirit in our inner beings so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. How do you know something that surpasses knowledge? You have to experience it. So don't you want to cry out like, oh, I want to really know you. I really want to know your love. Like chapter two at the end, then they will know me. So God wants your heart. He wants my heart. He wants our hearts. Sin shouldn't have our hearts. He should have our hearts. And he wants you to know his heart. A.W. Tozer said this, Jesus Christ knows the worst about you. Nonetheless, he is the one who loves you most. So through Hosea, God aims to make our sin more odious and repulsive and to make his love sweeter and more amazing. Tim Keller says it like this, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe or admit. Again, the heart of sin, it's ugly. We need to be honest about it. Yet at the very same time, he says, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ if you are trusting Jesus as your Savior than we ever dared hope. His heart is bigger and better than we hardly ever give him credit for. <laughs> and he put this whole book in there to show us his mighty, merciful, loving, faithful heart. So the repeated call in the book of Hosea is to repent and to return. Not just saying sorry for sins, for breaking laws, and then just kind of living on your own, but grieving our infidelity and coming back to our first love because he wants to walk closely with us. So, oh, how many times God could have said, good riddance. That's what we deserve. But instead, he pursues. He loves. He allures us. He woos us. He wins our heart at whatever cost. That's who he is. That's the kind of husband, spiritual husband he is. He is the compassionate, loving father who runs to welcome the returning prodigal. Right? So actually Chris and Hannah are going to come up now and Hannah's going to sing a song called The Prodigal. So the, I think the words are going to be on the screen. Yes? Okay, good. So you can follow along, but allow this song to prepare your heart for the Lord's table as we participate in, in that together in a few minutes because the Lord's table is a place of covenant renewal for us prone to wander but beloved daughters and sons. So if you have turned from your sin, trusted in Jesus as your Savior, you've gone public with that faith in baptism, the Lord's table is an ongoing means of grace 
because we are prone to wander and we need to see our sin and repent of it and we need to see the heart of God, the love of God and believe it and be strengthened by it. So listen to this song, examine yourselves, repent of any known sin like in 1 Corinthians 11 it says, so that we not eat and drink in an unworthy manner. So let me pray and then we'll listen to this song before we participate in the table together. God, we thank you for your great, great love. Help us not minimize or be blind to our sin. And I pray that your great contraconditional fidelity would just melt us and cause us to run back to you, to come to our senses and to come home. So easy for us to go off to the far country and end up in a pigsty. And I pray that we would come home knowing that you are a compassionate father that loves to forgive and cleanse and welcome back and pour out your love on his people. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.